Welcome to the Open Petri Podcast for yet another episode. Fantastic to have you listening uh, to what I think is going to be a really important podcast uh, moving forward. Obviously, we are in the middle of this transition series, which I've called uh, called it for this podcast uh, series and talking about strategy moving forward as our restaurants and cafes start to reopen again and then close again in some cases and then reopen again, we need to think about how we're actually going to build our businesses further. So fantastic over the last couple of months to really fall upon this next guest as we talk about delivery and delivery has been a major pain point for the industry, but something I know which is going to be extremely important for us to get out of this together Scott Landers, co-founder, system as an engineer of Figure Eight Delivery Consulting, all the way in NYC. How are you? Uh, we're doing all right today. Great yeah. to uh, great to be chatting with you all the way all the way around the world. <laughs> I know. Um, it's um, look. It's great to have you on. I know we've um, I know we've talked uh, last month, and and really, I didn't know that something like, you know, delivery consulting was actually a thing up until last month. And I know that America is probably a bit more ahead than what we are here in the Asia Pacific around, around delivery. But I want to get into that in a minute. But how did you actually start out to get to this point where you're, you know, effectively running a delivery consulting brand in New York? Yeah. So most immediately, my background before figure eight was as a restaurant operator i, mm-hmm. I worked as the direct director of offsite was my title uh at okay. dig in mm-hmm. which is a, a fast casual brand mm-hmm. here in new york has Amazing about brand. 20 30, 30 units in, in a couple um cities across the east coast and um i ended up joining the then catering team which kind of became this full offsite team and we were able to really do a lot of interesting work there Mm-hmm. Um, but, but focusing on, you know, taking an existing delivery business that had been around for 10 years, mm-hmm. modernizing it into, you know, what was then 2018. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and then, you know, in parallel with all that, trying just to make sense of everything else that was going on with all the third party delivery. And, you know, I was getting an email, a new email every week from some new food tech startup that wanted to deliver my food. And <laughs> at a certain point, you know, we just said enough's enough and we're going to do it ourselves. And mm. so through that experience, I, I got to firsthand kind of build uh, a native delivery business and um, having wrapped up that work at Dig, um, wanted to make that knowledge and, and information more accessible to other restaurants, both through uh, a consulting model to actually come in and, and mm. you know, be like your temporary offsite team to, fix the problems and then do what needs to get done. But also in the industry, you know, publishing uh, freely our, our designs and analysis and, and the, the same tools that we use for our clients, we often end up uh, later publishing. Uh. So how did, what did you most enjoy about Dig? Cause I've, I visited Dig um, in New York at the end of 2017 when I was over in America and was just blown away by um, just this product and professionalism and, and all those kind of things. When I was there, obviously they had a, um, a bit of a, um, a buyout or a cap raise in that period of time, I think. Um, what, did you, what did you most enjoy about your time at Dig? What were you impressed about when you're working there? Yeah, so when, 
we wanted to move for, uh, to New York originally. I was applying to food jobs. You know, I mm -hmm. didn't really, I didn't know what food delivery was, by the way, before 2017. I was yeah, thinking right. I was going to be on the other side of food delivery, which is um, working with farms. You know, I grew mm -hmm. up on a farm. Mm -hmm. I thought I would like go to restaurants and learn that side of the farm, but mm -hmm. um, ended up on the other side of, of the of the restaurant. Uh, you know, working with guests and creating you know customer facing channels. Yeah. Um, but but what what attracted me to Dig more than anything, you know, other than the, their respected brand, and we're in New York, which was very geographical. Yes. Um, was um, you know the local sourcing? I mean, they you could tell they were serious about it. It wasn't uh, a fad. It wasn't a trend. It was mm -hmm. you know they were they were putting in the work, and that was uh, what I wanted to really be working on more than anything else. And the idea was that if you can create a brand and demand for a product mm. you can take that purchasing power and hand it back to you know farms and, and local uh, businessmen and vendors that kind of meet your standards and support you know your same mission vision and values so that to me was really uh, the most exciting part of it yeah i mean i mean there's a lot of similarities between you know brands like dig and and, and sweet green and how they run their you know supply chain and that and that real connection with the farmer did that sort of make you really understand logistics a bit more and really, you know, get some runs on the board there as well and fall in love with it? Yeah. So it, it um, you know, you, you realize what it means to be seasonal and local mm. very quickly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't, um, what you're trading in terms of predictability, mm -hmm. get back in terms of quality. So that's, that's kind of the tension is yeah, predictable. Yeah long chain, you know, frozen supply chain, or, mm -hmm. you know, you're working with what mother nature gives you. And if it's rainy and they can't harvest the cauliflower, then that, that marketing promotion that you had for free cauliflower, is going to have to wait. Yeah. That's what it means. I mean, and, and that's fine. There's a beauty in that. And you just learn to roll with the seasons as we used to say. Yeah. Did you, did you find that that's really different, right? Like we, we, um, We've both grown up in a time where fast casual restaurants and um, and and fast food has been has been exploding, obviously, and there hasn't really been a no in in the case of um, in the case of supply chain. Like supply chain will just you know usually come through. Like was that just a bit of an eye opener for you to see seasonal ingredients that sometimes weren't even able to be delivered and marketing promotions that weren't able to be done. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up on a farm, mm. but never went to a farmer's market until I went to college, well. <laughs> which just says something about kind of yes. how yeah. inverted our food system currently <laughs> is. So I think this allowed me to see through the lens of the person purchasing from the farmer and working with the farms. Mm -hmm. You know, what it's, there's always a downstream consequence. And yeah, and, yeah. You, know, it's, you want to be you want to really understand both sides of the transaction. You know, what is the farmer going through and what does it mean to mm. grow and sell small batch to local restaurants and farmers markets? Mm -hmm. You know, what does it mean for the restaurant to work with local farms that might not be able to guarantee a ship date or the right volume, or, you know, if one field has an issue, you know, that could be 20% of the crop, unfortunately. And so you've just got to be really, adaptable yeah totally understand so let's 
Let's talk about delivery for food restaurants. Um, why do you think it's, you know, so critically important now, like food delivery across the world has really, you know, saved or propped up a lot of restaurants, um, depending what, you know, the different lockdown measures have been wherever you're listening. Like, why do you believe it's so important right now and how is that coming through in your consultancy to venues right now? I think right now <laughs> there's no other alternative. Mm. You know, mm. They're starting to be, we're reopening, you know, you're getting a sense of going back into a restaurant, but even still it's not in the way it, it was. Yeah. And that's got to be somewhat permanent, at least for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a long time for a restaurant that's sometimes only got one or two months of runway on the, on the books and, and you know, it could be week to week, you know, let alone now when there's no revenue. So the real thing is, is, you know, if you're a restaurant, mm-hmm. you have to sell food to people. Mm-hmm. And if the people aren't coming to you, you got to go to them mm-hmm. and you got to meet, meet them where they are. You have to meet your community where they are. And food delivery just unlocks that. It allows you to bring the restaurant to the guests instead of the guests coming to the restaurant. What are, what are some of the biggest um, annoyances you get from, from restaurant owners and cafe owners about delivery when you first initially consult? Because I'm sure you get the, you know, the war stories when you first talk to these brands and um, especially around the third, deli- uh, you know, the third party apps that control delivery. Like what are the couple of things that they're saying that really annoy them? Yeah, I think the third party versus native tension mm-hmm. is real. Mm-hmm. And I think there's just such a broader awareness. It's been building, but it's kind of coming to a head now mm-hmm. around just how predatory the whole model is, mm-hmm. around just how expensive it is for guests and restaurants and that nobody's making any money. Mm-hmm. And we've known this for a while, um, but it was just kind of that 5% thing on the side that happening and interesting but you know that's not what pays the bills and now it's the 95 percent yeah yeah and then you you've just it's got a big magnifying glass on it so i think there's a little bit of timeliness to it um so i think from there it it, it's just awareness around how easy it is actually to to go native Mm -hmm. you know it really it's not as hard as it was even three months ago let alone three years ago or 13 years ago. I mean, I talked, I talked to restaurant operators who were like, well, we tried to do delivery six years ago and we had all these issues. And it's like, man, I did delivery six weeks ago and it's changed since then. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a little bit of it is, is just recognizing two things. I think one, the technology is out there at a reasonable mm-hmm. price point that you need to rip the bandaid and do it. It's like, mm-hmm. if you're going to open up a restaurant, you paint the storefront, same thing. Mm-hmm. You don't, put a sign on the storefront that says, go to my neighbor next door who's selling my products, <laughs> which is basically what we're doing on our website. When, when, yeah. when I go to your website and you say, go to the third party, it's like, well, I want to order from you though. Yeah, I don't want exactly. to go to the third party. That's why I'm here. Mm-hmm. So give me what I want mm-hmm. as the customer. Um, and then I think the other part is just recognizing that there is quality and simplicity when it comes to food delivery. Mm-hmm. We've made it really complicated because we can, and it is valuable when you're doing lots and lots of delivery, you need Mm -hmm. all that infrastructure, Mm -hmm. but you know, really you don't need that big of a menu, three to 10 items, 
online ordering or, or text or send it over text or pay, you know, via uh, whatever your text mm-hmm. payment system is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and, and do it for pickup. And any restaurant can start that tomorrow. And then yeah. you find a local logistics company and you, you partner with them and you say, hey, I want you to deliver my food. Or you hire somebody and you say, look, we're going to do this schedule thing. And every Tuesday you get your, your farm box or your meal kit or whatever. And, and restaurants can start to build from the ground up kind of a new hospitality model. Mm. Is, is, are people just confused or scared with what, what native is or white labeling is in regards to delivery, Scott? Like, are they just, they, you know, it's like that if, if I'm a, you know, a pizza vendor, for example, and I might have, you know, 10 to 15 different drivers, which come through my venue on a on a, on a Friday night, because that's my biggest night. And then all of a sudden you're telling me that I need to do native or white label um, logistics to deliver my product. Are they just scared to make that move because they're worried about, you know, they're already being screwed by third party. Like, are they just worried that they won't be able to do a better job? I think that's part of it. You know, I think the reason third party works is because it's simple from the restaurant's perspective. Mm. You no money down, they send you a tablet, upload your menu, and you're making money. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. And in the short term, that's great. Mm-hmm. In the long term, you realize it's coming in the top line and going right back out before it hits the bottom line. Yeah. And that your online and digital reputation has been kind of taken over by yeah. third party mm. to where when I search for my restaurant, I see six third party listings and then I maybe see my website. Mm. So it's a question of like short term revenue versus long term brand equity. Yeah. If you want to kind of think of it like that. And then there's, there is a cost and change. There's a risk, you know, you have to, put in the time to build the website. You've got to find the local logistics writer. Like it's not easy to do native delivery yet. And that's the goal with figure eight is to make it easier. You know, you want to make it as to where native is just as easy and reliable as Mm -hmm. third party. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the real, the real difference is, is what you get with third party beyond the logistics and the online ordering is you get marketing. Yes. Like that 20, 30%, 10 to 15 of it is going directly to marketing. Yeah. You know, third party, they hand it back to Google or Facebook and they advertise on your behalf Yes, and kind of just cut you, cut you out of the middle. Mm. So you have to, when you go native, you also have to go native with your marketing. And that's what we've been working on a lot more recently as I brought on a marketing strategist and, and we're focusing it with our clients on how do we come up with just a simple, effective marketing campaign that you can use to drive these native delivery sales. Has that, has that probably been the biggest win? Because that's, I mean, that's what I've seen probably been the, um, the roadblock with, with most vendors is they're like, well, I don't like Uber Eats, I don't like delivery, I don't like DoorDash because they take, you know, a, a certain amount of money from me as a percentage and I'm not seeing the value out of that anymore. But, you know, they've got such massive platforms and, you know, I'm just another voice in a big pond. Like I'd rather be in a big pond of, you know, Uber Eats or Deliveroo, you know, is that the biggest probably challenge you face around the marketing part? I think that's one, but I think that there are other competitive advantages. So, so there's one advantage, which is just the network effect of, well, I've got all these things and it's sticky experience. And there's a switching cost from the consumer to leave the app and come to your website. Mm. 
but you're not going to win on those terms. So don't try. You're not going to out discount them. You're not going to out, you know, so, so play your own game, which is, it's actually cheaper if you order direct from us. Yes. That, that's probably <laughs> one, like we're, we're moving from a world where people had a lot of money and they could afford to just blow, you know, three, four extra dollars on, on third party and pay for mm. the convenience. And now it's like, well, maybe I want to save that three or four dollars. Mm. Do that by going direct. Just, just go to the website. You'll save three bucks right off the top. Um, two is it should be a, a better quality experience, which is, you know, you can trust who you're getting this from. Mm. You know who's making it, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a handwritten note or something. Yeah. Um, and, and I think at the end of the day, you know, you really just want to create the experience for delivery that you've created for dine-in. Yes. Do you think, do you think that's the biggest challenge and the big, one of the biggest things you help people with? I know you, you help people around packaging and um, obviously around their logistics, uh, obviously, <laughs> but, um, and how they, how they work that out. Like, is that, is that the, one of the biggest things that you actually help your clients with? I think that's one of the first principles we always look to mm. is who are you as a brand? Mm. What is the restaurant about? What makes the dine-in experience special? Why do mm-hmm. guests come to you and not your competitor? Mm-hmm. And then how do we recreate that thoughtfully at every step along the way in the delivery experience? With regards to you know, one of the biggest um, concerns I get, and I think I spoke to you about this um, last time I talked to you, with, with what we're seeing here in Melbourne is sort of this rise of uh, high-end um, product which is coming out and a lot of the reason why the premium um, fast casual um, even leading into the to the uh, to the um, high-end brands um, not wanting to do delivery is the product actually not being able to be you know um, moved properly in that delivery cycle and now a you know a different model where they're only gonna they're gonna deliver in a window it's gonna be a it's gonna be a product that's finished off by the customer um, but it's a you know it's about the same price as what you can get you know in a restaurant experience, like, do you think that kind of concept as well could be something that will, you know, will come through sort of in America? Well, if it's not in America, but come through as well, because I mean, that's a different concept coming into, you know, spending $60 a head for something delivered to my house that I finish off is, um, is definitely different. <laughs> yeah. I, um, so it is here too. So we see the same thing. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's an audience for it. I think it's really compelling and really interesting. I think over time, the per cost per person will come down maybe mm. to like $30 per person, even for something kind of high end. Yes. Um, but what we're really going to see is a proliferation of food delivery models, right? It's no longer just going to be, would you like pickup? Would you like delivery? Or would you like catering? Yes going to be here are 30 different experiences because <laughs> that's where people are going to compete. Yes. Right? Absolutely. That's where the competition is. And mm-hmm. so you're going to see just this explosion of different types of food delivery and subscription and mm-hmm. finish at home or we'll cook it or it's high end or it's low end. I mean, mm. there's so much that can be done and explored. Like we're just getting started with food delivery. I mean, we used to, when I was building, um, you know, uh, delivery services on our own, um, we had the idea of Michelin star delivery, 
Yeah. Which is how do you create, you know, the experience that it is just as good mm -hmm. by using delivery as part of the process. Yes. So the, the same way you would rest a steak, you know, you don't, you, 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 you cook a steak, you don't just serve it immediately. You let it rest, right? Mm. Well, why can't it rest on its way to you? Mm. Yeah. Really good point. <laughs> it's, um, I think you're completely right. I think we're now going to see this just elevated experience of people's homes. And if it's not quote unquote safe to be in restaurants, um, as it used to be, maybe in a packed restaurant, then, um, chefs coming to home and doing some sort of, um, high end experience for their guests that can afford it, um, which there still are a lot of people who can. Um, then I think that's only going to be what's going to come through the market. It's quite interesting. Um, moving forward, let's talk about ghost kitchens. I really want to get your um, feeling on this. I know you're working with um, one of the biggest providers coming out of New York, uh, Zool Kitchens, um, at the moment. Um, people call ghost kitchens, dark kitchens or satellite kitchens or whatever they want to call it. But do you want to explain some of the work you're doing with Zool at the moment and how that's different to um, to actually delivery coming from a uh, from a venue? Yeah, well, we just call it cooking. <laughs> um, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's a kitchen. You know, I, yeah, I've worked true. in I've I've worked in restaurants that are uh, darker than some of these ghost kitchens. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, you know, again, this is one example of the proliferation of food delivery formats. Mm -hmm. So you think about, well, what is a restaurant or what is a kitchen? You know, it's just a way to turn raw ingredients into cooked kind of value add meals or products. Mm -hmm. Then there are all these different formats and ways to get it. There's full service, fine dining, there's casual dining, mm -hmm. there's fast casual, there's fast food, there's a drive through, there's grocery. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, ghost kitchens are probably somewhere between like fast food and, or not, sorry, not fast food, drive through and grocery mm -hmm. on the spectrum, if you want to okay. think of it. Mm -hmm. So it's just another way to take raw ingredients and, and cook meals. And these are real brands oftentimes, at least mm -hmm. with Zool. These are real local restaurants that are looking to expand their zone. Mm -hmm. And they can do it online and digitally. So it's more like a digital kitchen than a ghost kitchen, if you want to think of it that way. Yeah, for sure. Um, but but ag again, there's a lot more going on there. It, there's also this idea of you know a shared economy mm -hmm. behind the ghost kitchen, which is, look, we don't all need our own dish pit. We don't all need our own walk-in. We don't mm -hmm. all need our own gas connection. Like we can share some things. You know, I have my four walls and a key, and like this is my kitchen mm -hmm. you know, the same way that you have your office in an office building like no one else yes. has access to it but you don't have to go build your own office building to have an office yeah you know even this is even kind of pre-we work this is just how mm -hmm. office buildings work mm -hmm. so i think it's the same idea for kitchens which is historically you know restaurants were like builder operators they had mm -hmm. to develop their own properties then they had to operate it because everything was competing for how special your on-site property was. That's what the competition was. Mm -hmm. So of course you had to want, you wanted your lights and your colors and everything to be just how, how you want it. Now, none of that is seen by the guests. That's not mm -hmm. where the competition is. The competition is at home. Mm -hmm. 
And if all you're doing is cooking an excellent product, putting it in some kind of delivery bag or vessel, transporting it to a guest, and that's what they're receiving, Mm -hmm. you can do that from anywhere. Mm -hmm. So why would I want prime real estate in a thousand square foot front of house in a massive kitchen when I can do all of that out of a 200 square foot kitchen and oh, by the way, someone else handles my dishes? Mm. Sign me up. (laughs) Um, It's part of the pitch. I mean, it's, it's a little more nuanced than that, but that's really what it is. And then it allows you to open up a restaurant, right? Or a kitchen closer to where the guests actually live. Mm -hmm. So there's no separation between like all the great spots are downtown, but I live uptown. Mm. All the ghost kitchen uptown can now just cook and deliver you that experience at home where you are anyhow, because you can't go downtown. Yeah. Um, So it becomes just a more efficient and and accessible way to start an F&B business. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Like all you have to do is just come in uh, and, and it's, uh, I think, going to really create um, a lot of access to, to independent chefs and people who have an idea for a restaurant, but don't have a million dollars to spend in building it out. Um, yeah. But maybe can work on a commission deal or on a, on a small down payment and small amount of rent and mm-hmm. sign a six month or a 12 month contract and try it out. Do you think, do you think moving forward, Scott, with, probably less access to capital um, worldwide for restaurants um, and cafes that things like ghost kitchens will um, become the way that brands, you know, actually expand uh, because obviously it's a lot cheaper to do that than do a half a million or million dollar bricks and mortar fit out, you know? So yeah. is, th- is that what you're sort of thinking I moving expect, forward? Yeah. I expect restaurants to have one or two flagship you know, spaces that they own and operate in the major cities they're in. Mm-hmm. And then otherwise have the scale of their operations in ghost kitchens. So like maybe you have one restaurant in New York, but 10 ghost kitchens in greater New York city mm-hmm. in Jersey and Westchester and long mm-hmm. Island, you know, mm-hmm. maybe you have one um, ghost kitchen in Tampa or one, one restaurant in Tampa, but a bunch of ghost kitchens all around Tampa Bay. So yeah. I think, there's, it's just, again, a, a more efficient use of capital because so much capital in restaurants, it goes to just like standing up and knocking down walls. Yes. With a ghost kitchen, you're not doing that. You're, you're, if anything, you're just swapping out equipment. Mm-hmm. The walls stay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you, you're able to reuse, you know, the whole thing and you're only rebuilding a very small part of it. You're not rebuilding mm-hmm. the dispatch area. You're not rebuilding the, the dish pit. You're not rebuilding the walk-in. You're just taking out some equipment, plugging in some new equipment and you're good to go. Mm. Are any of the brands that you're working with, you know, uh, working out of one kitchen, but doing maybe two or three different concepts out of that one kitchen? Yeah, we're starting to see that. Um, Mm -hmm. Both concepts that they have developed themselves, Mm -hmm. as well as concepts they may be licensing, like complimentary cuisines from other brands or other services. Like a dessert concept or something like that? Exactly. Yeah. Like I have... Like I'm a deli, but there's this cool mac and cheese concept. Like, sure, I'll license it and pay 5% and it's got a couple ingredients. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, now I can maybe it's popular at late night when I'm not popular. So, sure, I'll make some mac and cheese and, you know, thanks for the <laughs> for the extra sale. <laughs> do, you th- do you think this time of COVID has actually made a lot of, you know, restaurant vendors just open to the idea of delivery, open to the idea of native and, and thinking outside the square when before they might've just gone, nah, fuck it. I'm not going to do delivery. I don't, 
I don't care about ghost kitchens. I don't want to talk about that, Scott. You know, is it changed? Absolutely. I, I've talked to people in fine dining who would have never done delivery. Like mm-hmm. some of the best restaurants in the world, you know, Michelin star places here in New York. And now they're, they're talking about delivery. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's a little bit of whether they, I don't even think they believe it half the time. I think they're still in disbelief. Like I can't believe I'm thinking about delivery. I'm a, you know, Michelin starred fine dining trained chef. And here I am thinking about, you know, how do I make a sandwich that travels? But it's really interesting because I think it'll now take some of that talent that has been in really robust, rigorous, fine dining situations for a long time mm-hmm. and allow them to say, well, I have these skills and here's some new challenge. How do I cook that steak that gets better as it travels? How do I yeah. cook um, a piece of toast that's still crispy when it's delivered? How do I, I, I mean, I can't wait to see the delivery cookbook one day which are like here are all the new recipes and the techniques and ingredients and mm. things that have gone into making delivered food amazing it's mm. a great it's a really great suggestion um what if what if i'm a restaurant vendor um i you know don't have access to a ghost kitchen um but you know um I really want to, you know, get it, get some sort of concept up on the other side of town, um, but don't know how to, you know, don't know how to do it. Do you think they should, you know, hit up other restaurants and see if they can use their kitchen at different parts or like, what do you think the best way is to go? Because ghost kitchens are extremely fantastic, but, you know, sometimes the infrastructure just isn't there and where you actually want it to be. Yeah, I think that there's such a recognition of community in the restaurant industry and hospitality industry, particularly now. That sounds reasonable. I mean, there's some restaurants that are, are crickets right now. They're like, if I make a thousand bucks a day, that's a good day. Yeah. Yeah. If you think, if you think you can come in here and, <laughs> and come up with some crazy idea and even sell 20, 30 covers a day, like great. Yeah, let's yeah. do it. I mean, I think that there's a, a real openness to that. I think, the services and the technology will catch up to make that easier to mm-hmm. where, you know, you can like just book an hour in a, in a existing kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the time being, I mean, if you've got a great idea, it's really just about connecting it all together and connecting it to the local community. So if you see an opportunity and, you know, can build the online ordering infrastructure and have a really great social media presence. Yeah. Find a local chef that can do the cooking for you or with you or, um, you know, a kitchen that has some extra capacity. Mm. Do you think, um, let's say you can't go native delivery for whatever reason, but you know, you still want to do, you know, you want to do delivery. Do you think it's a blessing or a curse to be sort of on, you know, three to four different third party platforms, which, you know, you and I would see every day of the week, right? They're on Uber Eats, Delivery, DoorDash, you know, about another two or three more, like, do you think that's the smart way to do it or do you think they should just be exclusive on one or? I think if you're starting out as a new restaurant, I would really think through a serious marketing campaign or native mm-hmm. campaign, go gorilla if you have to, yeah. um, to, to start and be 100% native. Mm-hmm. If you already have third party channels, mm-hmm. I would work on building a native channel and then mm-hmm. starting to slowly convert them over and wind down the ones that are the mm-hmm. lowest performers. If you're only making 200 bucks a week, 
you know, let's think about turning that off and trying to build that back in native. Yeah. Um, and then I think, you know, if you are somewhere in the middle where you've built native and you've got done as much as you can, but you still need something more, then look for the best one or two in your area mm-hmm. that will get you the most demand and be the best partner, give you the best rate mm-hmm. and work kind of with one or two. So if mm-hmm. you have a native channel and then one or two third parties, that's probably the right balance. I think more than that, and it becomes too much to manage and it just confuses your online reputation too much. Yeah, absolutely. What about, um, what about in regards with menu? Do you think it's important for brands to have, you know, everything that's on their menu in-house on delivery, or do you think it's more look at your top sellers and just, you know, just have those on a delivery menu or the things that are just top margins? Like how do you work through that with your clients normally? Yeah, it's a balancing act. I mean, I think you always want to optimize for the ones that have the best margins and best popularity. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also have to optimize for delivery. I mean, if it doesn't deliver well, don't send it. Just, <laughs> it's not going to happen. Um, and some items don't travel well, and that's fine. So you can not put them on the menu to start. They're available for dine-in only or for pickup only. So come mm-hmm. on in. We want to see you. Um, but then you can also work on on figuring out how do I make this travel? Yeah. If it's a really popular item and it's got really great margins, let's let's get creative. Maybe it is somewhat of a meal kit where it's like you toast the bread yourself. Yes. Yeah. Something as simple as that can like completely change the construct of a menu item. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally agree. My last question to you is: um, Do you think uh, do you think that there'll be delivery only concepts which come out of this that never have a bricks and mortar? which only have, you know, only have ghost kitchens moving forward um, just because the the expense in hospitality doing bricks and mortar sites is, you know, so immense as we both know. Do you think there are just going to be delivery-only concepts which come out of this? Well, a lot of them have already sprung up. Mm. Um, you know, you're seeing this, at least here in the States, there are companies that have made up five or six virtual brands and just licensed them out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I don't know if that's how viable that strategy is. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's maybe a good R and D strategy to see what works, but yeah. Yeah. over time it becomes, it will become difficult to sustain. Mm-hmm. But I think eventually, you know, someone's going to figure it out and someone's going to have a really compelling story. They're going to be really good at e-commerce and digital marketing mm-hmm. and they'll build, you know, a, a full online ordering business. Yeah. And I think, I think it'll happen. Um, I don't think it'll be everything. And that doesn't, that's by no means a prediction, but you know, it's like there was only one drive through until there were thousands. <laughs> <laughs> Just started with one, right? So it'd be, um, it'd be very interesting to see what comes out of this, uh, at this pandemic. Um, Scott, thanks so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it, mate. How can, um, how can people find out about figure eight and what you are doing in New York? Sure. So the best way is to go on over to our website, which is figure8.delivery. That's the number eight. Mm -hmm. Or they can send an email to hello at figure8.com. Awesome, man. Uh, As always, linked up in the bio of this podcast, Scott Landers, thanks so much for your time. Great chatting with you.